Well, you need to understand history in order to grasp or understand the importance of, of certain events, whether those are current events or whether those are even other historical events. You cannot know the, the reason behind an event or the importance of an event without understanding what has led up to that event. That history is important. So as many of you know, the UAE just celebrated its National Day. Now I think whether or not we're from the UAE, you and I can understand something of what that means. Your, your own nations probably have something similar, some, something similar to National Day. But to truly grasp the importance of National Day here in the UAE to this nation, you need to know something of the founding of the country. Now, how did it come into existence? What was the situation leading up to the founding of the country? Uh, even after the founding, what has happened for the last 50 years in this country? Well, why is it such a big deal? Now, history matters. And what is what is true of UAE National Day or any other historical event is also true of Christmas. To understand the, the meaning of Christmas or to understand the importance of Christmas, you need to know some history. The meaning of Christmas is, is not found in gifts, it's not found in traditions, it's not found in, in time with family or friends. And the meaning of Christmas is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So to understand why the birth of Jesus Christ is so significant, why Christians have been celebrating it for thousands of years, we need to go back in history. We need to go back to the, the beginning of the biblical story and the beginning of, of all of history. And, and as we do, we will find that the birth of, of Jesus Christ was no ordinary birth. So Abigail just read for us from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and I want to return to those verses in the, the minutes we have together, uh, specifically John 1, verse 14. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to John 1, 14. If you do not, it'll probably be on the screen, or you can find it in the, the bulletin. You can find the text in the bulletin. Now, so John's gospel is different from some of the other Gospels. So we just read uh, a couple passages from Luke's Gospel that describes the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. It describes what is actually happening in the birth of Jesus. That you know, shepherds come, that, that Jesus is laid in a manger, all these events that you know. But John's Gospel does something different. The beginning of John's Gospel tells us the meaning behind Jesus' birth. John's Gospel tells us the meaning of Christmas. So look with me at John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what I want to do in our time together is really just ask two questions from this verse, two questions from this verse, and these two questions take us back in history. They take us back to the beginning of history, but they don't only do, the, do this. These verses don't only just take us back. They also point us forward. They point us forward to the end of history. And so those two questions are simply, who is the word? Who is the Word, and why is it such a big deal that the Word became flesh? So those are the, the two questions I just want to explore in the few minutes that we have together. 
Now the, the first question then is, who is the Word? Now the, the Word is Jesus Christ. I doubt this is a big secret to, to most of you. If you look back at verses 6 and 7, even here in John chapter 1, the Apostle John wrote that John the Baptist, so not the same person there, is Apostle John writing John's Gospel. He is talking about John the Baptist, two different people. Well, he wrote that John the Baptist came to testify about the Word. And if you look a few verses later in chapter 1, all the way down to verse 29, you can see that when Jesus came to John to be baptized later, so now Jesus is an adult, this is what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. In other words, this is the one I was testifying about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Well, in, in other words, both John the Baptist and, and John the Apostle writing this gospel make it very clear that the Word is Jesus Christ himself. So the answer to that question of who is the Word is Jesus. But what I'm really asking when I'm asking who is the Word, I'm, I'm really trying to ask a deeper question. I'm really wanting to ask who is Jesus? Who is this baby that was born 2,000 years ago? Because that is, that's really the question that John is, is seeking to answer both here in the first chapter of his gospel and then really throughout his whole gospel. That is the question he is seeking to answer. And this question of who is Jesus or who is the Word, well, it takes us back to the beginning of John, John, John's gospel and back to the beginning of the Bible. So look with me at, at John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. So, in the beginning, the three words that open up John's gospel here in John 1, those same three words that begin John's gospel are the same three words that begin the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John here in his first verse of his gospel is intentionally pointing you back. He's intentionally pointing you back to the beginning of history. And he's doing it on purpose. John is doing this to teach you something. And what he is teaching is that the Word is God. He says it very plainly in verse 1, the Word was God. He also says the Word was with God. That is simply because God is a triune God. One God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I, I know that can be hard to understand, my intention or my goal this afternoon is not to explain to you the Trinity or how God can be one and yet exist in three persons. But right now, what I, what I want you to understand is that Jesus, the Word, is God. That's what John is saying here. If you need any more evidence of the truth of that statement, just look at what else John says about the Word in these opening verses. The first thing we learn about this Word is that He was there at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. 
and that he was the agent of creation. All things were created through him. So Jesus, the word who became flesh, existed before time began. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born to Mary. He existed before Mary. In his birth, he was taking on human flesh and a, a human nature. He was not created, but existed before creation. He was not created, but the one who created all things. Jesus is the eternal existing creator. And friends, who else can eternally exist except God? And who can create all things other than God? I mean, the answer is no one. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.3, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus is God. Now, friends, for, for some of you, I know that may have felt like very obvious or basic information. It may have felt like just a routine theological lecture that Jesus is God. But the, the reason that I think it was important to start there, the reason that I wanted you to see that the Word is God, that Jesus the Word is God, is because you will never understand what a monumental and magnificent statement it is that the Word became flesh, unless you understand that the Word was God. You will never understand the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You will never understand that it is good news unless you understand that the Word is the creator of all things and that the Word is the creator of you. If you want to know and, and understand the meaning of Christmas, you must know the Word is God. Well, if, uh, if you had a friend, you had a friend who told you that uh, someone named Joe was coming to visit Fujairah and was going to stay at their house, you probably would not think a whole lot about that statement. You would probably wonder why in the world this person bothered to tell you this in the first place. Like, you know, I have no idea who this Joe person is. Uh, thanks, I guess, for, for letting me know he's coming to visit. But if you later learn that the Joe that your friend was speaking of is Joe Biden, the current president of the United States, well, that might change your perspective on this visit to your friend's house all of a sudden. Knowing who Joe is would immediately change how important you think his visit is to Fajarah. How much you cared about his visit to Fajarah. It would probably shape your opinion of your friend that uh, such an important figure was coming to visit him or her. And knowing who Joe is, it would make all the difference. My friends, knowing who Jesus is, knowing who Jesus is makes all the difference. Unless you understand who Jesus is, the significance of Christmas, the significance of the word becoming flesh will be lost on you. Jesus is not just a good person or a good example, though he is those things. Jesus is not just a, a good teacher who came and taught great moral principles by which we should live our lives, though that is true. Jesus is not just a prophet, though he is. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity God himself. And Christmas is, is not about gifts or time with family or holiday traditions or whatever else you want to insert. It's about God coming to dwell with his people. 
And understanding this makes all the difference. And so who, was, who is the Word? The Word is, is Jesus, and Jesus is God. And so now, now that we have established that as kind of a, a baseline, that is a, a fundamental foundation, I want to ask, well, why is it a big deal then that the Word became flesh? Go back to John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, it's, a, it's a big deal that, that Jesus came and dwelt among us since Jesus is God. But also, but also, and this is what I really want you to see, because there is no greater treasure than the presence of God. Friends, did you know that the presence of God, God's dwelling with man, is the purpose of all of creation. God created the earth and he created man that he might dwell with them, that they might know him, and ultimately that they might bring him glory. God did not do this because he was lonely. That is not why Christmas exists, because God was lonely and decided he was going to come down to earth to get a little fellowship. No, God was perfectly satisfied in himself since the beginning of time. God did this out of love, out of the overflow of his love. God's dwelling with man was not just the, the purpose of creation. It's also the end goal of all of history. It's where history is, is moving. The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And much of that book is really a description of the end of human history. It is what will happen when this world passes away and the, the new world or the eternal world comes. Well, the, the same man who wrote the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, is the same one who wrote the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, he receives a vision from God of the world that is to come. And this is part of that vision. We, we see it in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Uh, John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look. God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. And so central central at the middle of this vision that, that John sees about the end of all human history is God living with his people. It's a picture of heaven coming down to earth, which is what is one day going to happen, the new heavens and the new earth. It's a picture of God comforting his people. It's a picture of God protecting his people. It's a vision of great joy when sickness and sadness and pain and tears and death are no more. Friends, this is the blessing of God's presence. Now, if, if you have had a, a loved one die, or you uh, know someone who has had someone very close to them, a, a loved one, a member of the family, die, well, people often say, when that happens, 
they just wish that they could have another moment with that person. Uh, they miss them. They want to spend time with them. They remember all the, the good times they've had with that individual. They, they recall their love for them and that person's love for them. And, and what they want is just more time with that person. God has created us to, to fellowship with one another. And that's why we have these longings. He's created us to love one another. But more importantly, we've been created to fellowship with God himself. To, to love God in a much greater way than an extra moment with a loved one will be, is, is a moment in the full and free fellowship with God. And this is how God created Adam and Eve in the garden. We're going to look at this in just a moment. And it's the, the joy and the hope that, that God's people have. It is that one day they don't just get a, a moment, a moment with a, another loved one. Is that they get a never-ending supply of minutes with the God of the universe. Now, if we return to John's vision in Revelation, this new heavens and new earth coming down, God dwelling with his people, there's only one problem with John's vision. A, a few verses after describing God coming to dwell with his people in this heavenly city that comes down, John writes in Revelation 21-27 that nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, why is that a problem? It's not going to be a problem then. This is a, a vision of a perfection, a God coming down to dwell with his people. But as, as we live here on this earth, it should raise a question that is a problem now. And, and that problem is, if nothing unclean is ever going to enter this city, how are we going to enter this city? Because over and over again, the Bible teaches that all of mankind is sinful. All of mankind has rebelled against God, and their sin has made them unclean. This is one of the biggest pictures the Bible gives of sin, is it makes you unclean. You have been stained with sin. You have been marked with sin. So this vision that John presents should raise a few questions in your mind. How can a holy and perfect God come down and dwell with sinful people? How can I ever enter this city if nothing unclean can enter this city? How can I dwell with God? Well, in many ways, this is really the central question of the entire Bible. The Bible, in some ways, is centered around this question. How can sinful man dwell with a holy God? God and sin are, are something like oil and water. They cannot mix. They do not mix. They cannot exist together because God is perfectly good. He is too pure to dwell with sin. So how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? How can you enter this city? How can you go to heaven? Again, this question takes us back to the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created Adam and Eve, who were real historical people, and placed them in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you, you know something of Genesis, you know that God was present with them there. The Bible even says that God walked with them there. But you probably know the story. We just read some of the story. Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, 
they were sent out of the Garden of Eden. And God stationed an angel at the entrance back into the garden with a flaming sword, barring them from going back to the garden and forbidding them from going back to the presence of God. They lost the blessing and joy of God's presence because their sin had made them unclean. Friends, the Bible teaches that every man and woman that has followed Adam, every man and woman that has been born since Adam and Eve have been sinners. You are a sinner. You have rebelled against God. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner by nature. And your sin has separated you from God. So how can you dwell with a holy God? How can you enter the eternal city? Again, this is is what the Bible is all about. If you fast forward a short ways in the Bible from, from Genesis, you find that after God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, you can read all about that in Exodus, he commands the people to build a, a tabernacle, which was a luxurious tent that served as a sanctuary for God. Eventually, the, the people of God, Israel, they would build not just a tabernacle, they would go on to build a, a temple as well. And God said that the reason that they were to construct this tent was so that God could dwell with his people. Exodus 25, 8, God says this is the purpose of the tabernacle, so God could dwell with his people. Yet, if you know the story, you know access to God in the tabernacle. And later, the temple was limited God was said to reside in only one specific room in the tabernacle. Yes, the people knew that God dwells everywhere, but there was a special significant way where God dwelled in the tabernacle, in the temple, but only in one specific room, the most holy place. This place was shut off by a huge curtain to separate the sinful people of Israel from the holy God who dwelled in their midst. For the Israelites even to remain in the camp, even near the tabernacle or around the tabernacle, They had to offer sacrifices for their sin. They had to be made clean over and over and only over again. Only one man in the entire nation of Israel could enter the most holy place, uh, the high priest. He could only do that once a year. And before he entered, he had to offer a sacrifice. He had to be sprinkled with blood. He had to wash himself and be made clean. He needed to be made clean to enter the presence of God. So as wonderful as it was that God would dwell with his people in the tabernacle and the temple, it was no Garden of Eden. And it fell far short of John's vision from Revelation. Now, ultimately, if, if you know the Old Testament, eventually God removed his presence from the temple because of the great sin of the people of Israel. Because of their refusal to repent, he removed his presence from the temple. And so the question remained, how can sinful man dwell with a holy God. My friends, what I want you to see, I know it took us a bit to get there, but what I want you to see is that the answer to that question is Jesus. The answer is the incarnation. In other words, God taking on human flesh. The answer is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The answer is that not that we drew near to God, but that God drew near to us. The word that that John uses in John 1.14 to say that that God dwelled among us, in the Greek it's actually the word that he tabernacled with us. He's pointing us back to the the tabernacle and the temple, 
He is he's teaching something. Friends, you're not able to draw near to God. You are not able to approach him in your sin. So what did Jesus do? He took on human flesh and he drew near to you instead. In his grace, he, he took on human flesh that he might save you and that he might make you clean. Jesus is the answer to how sinful man can dwell with a holy God. But you might be wondering, well, okay, I can, I can buy that, but the question is how? How does Jesus make this possible? Well, first, by, by coming in the flesh, Jesus makes God known. Now, now, how do people know you and I? How do they get to know us? Well, it's usually by talking. You get to know someone by talking to them. They get to know you as you talk to them. It is through our words. And this is why, this is why Jesus is called the Word. It's because we cannot know God except through Him. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. He has revealed God to us. He is the, the glory, is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, Jesus made God known, but... But he did much more than that. Jesus did more than, than make God know. He died that you might be forgiven from your sins and made clean so that you could dwell in the presence of God forever. Unlike every other person who has ever lived, Jesus was without sin. He was worthy to dwell in the presence of God. He was clean. Jesus needed no separation from God. And because he lived a perfect life, he was able to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross for sin. On the cross, Jesus took God's anger and wrath against sin on himself. He bore the judgment for sin that you and I deserve. The author of Hebrews writes that Jesus, by one offering, that one offering being his atoning sacrifice on the cross, Jesus, by one offering, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Jesus made them clean. Remember John's vision in Revelation. Nothing unclean can enter the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean can be in the presence of God. At the end of history, when heaven comes down to earth, there will be no sin there. There will be nothing unclean there. Well, at the end of John's vision, he is told that those clothed in white robes Robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb have the right to enter the city. Only those clothed in white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They can enter because Jesus has made them clean. Friends, the answer to how you can be made clean, the answer to how you can be forgiven, the answer to how your robes can be washed and made white, the answer to how, well, how your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. The answer to how you can dwell with God forever is by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. This means admitting that you are a sinner that is separated from God, that you are deserving of God's judgment. It's admitting that you do not deserve to dwell in this eternal city. It means placing your faith in Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he really did come to earth, that God really did come down and take on human flesh, that he died on the cross for those who had repented their sins and believed in him, and that he rose from the dead three days later and is now alive, that he will one day return 
and bring all those who believe in him to the heavenly city to dwell in his presence forever. And friends, this is how you gain the presence of God. The promise of eternity is not one more minute with a loved one, as wonderful as that would be. But as I said, never-ending minutes with the creator of the universe. Friends, if you are new to Christianity, if, if maybe you haven't been to church a lot in your life, I, I know that was a, a lot of information, that was a lot of Bible to try to, to go through in a few minutes. But I want you to know that this is what we preach about every time we meet. We preach the Bible, which from beginning to end, which I hope you've seen in our scripture readings and even in this sermon, the Bible from beginning to end is one unified story about redemption in Jesus Christ. The Bible is a story of God's grace, about, and it's about the person of Jesus Christ. And so we invite you to return next week or any future week or many weeks as you want to hear about this amazing Savior who came to earth to save you from your sins. And Christians, what about you? How can the presence of God encourage you this Christmas? Well, it's, it's by remembering that you serve a God who drew near to you. A God who heard the cries of his people, who heard the anguish and the longing of his people, the pain and suffering of his people. And he responded by sending a Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. You have a God who, who understands you. You have a God who can sympathize, sympathize with you because he knows what it is like to be human. He lived on this earth for over 30 years. And you have a God who is right now present with you by his spirit. God has sent you his spirit to dwell with you, to be with you. Well, in, in reflecting on the amazing reality of serving a God who came to earth to dwell with, to dwell with us, Glenna Marshall writes this in her book, The Promise is Her Presence. She writes this about this amazing fact that God would come and draw near to us. She writes this. Is there any better way for God to love us than to be with us? His presence is the deepest need we have. That the Almighty God would bend so low as to be with us in our grief, our sin, our confusion, and our doubt is at odds with every other type of man-God relationship that has ever been conceived. This is steadfast love. The peculiar love he displays with his nearness to his people. He does not abandon them in their suffering, but loves them by being with them through their adversity. God's plan to redeem us is sown with threads of nearness. His way of redemption was designed for the purpose of his glory and our enjoyment of his presence. We are the ones who wreck the good plans. Our sin prevents us from enjoying his presence perfectly. And we foolishly try to fix it with something besides him. Anything besides him. It is always futile, always empty, always a false start. Well, her point, if you could summarize it in one sentence, is God is all you need. And she says that we are so often discontent because we think we need something other than God to be happy. We think that life will be better if we had this or that. We forget that the trials of our life, God is using them to point us to him, to teach us that he is all we need, that we might have a, a fullness of joy. God has loved you 
God has loved you so much that he has given you what you need. What you need. He has given you his presence. But brothers and sisters, we are so often prone to forget this. We forget that God promised to never leave us or forsake us. We forget the blessing of God's presence. And so friends, one of the reasons that we celebrate Christmas every year, one of the reasons we light Advent candles, one of the reasons that we read these scriptures and sing these songs are so familiar, is to remember. We remember that Jesus came in the flesh to save us from our sin. We celebrate to remember that he has given us his spirit. We celebrate to remember that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And one day we will be with him for all eternity. The Christian life is one of remembrance. It is remembering what God has done. It is remembering who God is. And it is remembering what he has promised to do in the future. So brothers and sisters, let Christmas... But this Christmas reminds you that you serve a God who has drawn near. You serve the Word who has taken on flesh and revealed the glory of God. Let's pray.